for Gina. Very, very special. All right. Well, this morning I wanted to get started by asking you all a question. It's a question I'm going to be repeating a few times this morning, so you're going to have a lot of time to think about it. But have you ever, any of you, have you ever been in a place where you were in the minority? Last fall, I got invited to a conference at a friend's church. He really wanted me to go. I wasn't kind of wanting to go, but he wanted me to go so bad I went. And I went. And it might have been like some of you might have felt this morning because it was an environment I wasn't used to. And it seemed like everyone was into what was going on, but whatever they were experiencing wasn't happening to me. And as people were having all these experiences around me, and I just sat in the back room going, okay, God, what about me? And nothing's happening, and I wasn't going to fake anything, so I was like, well, nothing's happening. And, and increasingly, I felt more and more uncomfortable in that place, and, I, and then I started feeling like, man, I don't even belong here. That's what happens when you're in the minority in a place, right? And I kind of just slunk away, and eventually I just left. Have you ever been in a place where, where you were in the minority? 33 years ago, when I was dating Diane, 1986, young man working at Liberty Mutual, and I was living in New Hampshire, she was living in Connecticut, and I first time I came down to visit her, got out of work in my suit, back then we wore suit and ties to work, right? And I uh, got in my car, and I drove down. Now, I had to get to her house. This is, of course, a long time ago, so there's no GPSs, there's no internet, so there's no MapQuest even, right? So I had to use this thing called a map. We can show it to some of you, okay? And I, had to, and I figured out with the map, 84, and then I'm looking at the map to get to her house. Well, there's this really big road called 44 that looks like it goes straight there, so that'll be easy. So I go 84, I get to Hartford, I get on 44, I'm in downtown Hartford, which I thought was cool, you know, and all these corporate buildings, I feel comfortable. And then I cross over this intersection, and I find that, Andre, you're not in New Hampshire anymore. Because New Hampshire is 98% white and mostly rural. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a place that was very different than I was used to. And I came to a light, and it turned red. And I stopped, and I looked around, and I made eye contact with, with some young men who were looking at me, and I was feeling very much, I don't belong in this place. And, my, and I started feeling fearful. And out of that fear, what I did is I locked my doors. And then I looked straight ahead, and I was like, turn green, turn green, turn green. And this fear was just building in me, and I, I, I had to get out of there. And finally, I crossed over into West Hartford, and the fear went away. Ever been in a place where you've been in the minority? Some of you maybe aren't connecting to this question. Some of you are very much connecting to it. Those of you who aren't, just ask a traditional worshiper who sees band equipment and casual dress and says, whatever happened to my church? Just ask the woman who once again feels that her opinion is unvalued and unheard. Just ask the elderly person who feels invisible in a wired digital world that they don't understand. Or just ask the young black men I made eye contact with in 1986 on Albany Avenue as they watched me lock my doors in their presence. Have you ever 
been in a place where you're in the minority? It's a terrible feeling. You feel that you don't belong. You feel that your view is not important. You feel dismissed and devalued. It's a terrible place. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask us for a moment here, if we would please just turn to the person next to you. And I want you to just take a moment to share a time when you felt in the minority, in whatever way it might have been. A time when you felt that your views weren't being represented or you weren't being taken seriously enough. Just turn to the person next to you and, and share that with one another, if you would. Thank you. And we'll be back in a few moments. All right, let's, uh, let's come back together. We are um, just coming out, as Leroy said in the worship time, 40 days of prayer and fasting. And then we had a sacred assembly. We had an entire morning where we as a church came together and repented and sought the Lord. What we're doing is we call this thing alignment. We've been trying to align ourselves with God and with each other. And as we're aligning, the thought was that once we aligned with God and each other, God will give us our assignment, what he wants us to do. And it's all around this vision statement that, that God had placed in my heart that I asked us to pray into, which was this. We want to see God, say it with me. We want to see God use us with others to create pockets of shalom as foretastes of the return of the king and the reconciliation of heaven and earth. There's a lot there. God gave me that vision when I was at a prayer meeting at Wellspring Church, and we sang Build My Life, which we sang this morning. It was in the middle of singing that song that God just plopped this in my head. It was a culmination of years of waiting on God, would you show us? Um, but it was clear, he said, I want you to walk, you need to be aligned first before you begin, begin to understand what even that big, huge vision means. That's a big vision. Reconciliation of everything, that's pretty big. What does that mean for us practically? What are we supposed to actually do? Most of us are doers. We want to get to that assignment part, right? But God is calling us into this alignment because there's power in agreement. When you agree with a lie, it will destroy your life. When you agree with the truth, it will set you free. There is power in agreement. But what does agreement mean? Does it mean we believe the exact same things? Do we do the same things? That's the question. How do we know when we're aligned? Will we ever be, we won't be perfectly aligned until Christ comes back, right? However, we're called to understand that we are one body. We are one body. We need to understand that oneness. Just like a marriage will never be fully one, but that's the calling of marriage, right? You are one. The two are one. And so we want to continue to, to build in and sow into this oneness because there's so much power. The more oneness, the more alignment, the more power that comes with it. There's power in agreement. So I felt like the Lord put it on my heart. Instead of continuing with the gospel of Mark sermon series, I'm going to go back to it. But I felt, actually someone suggested, I prayed about it, I felt like it was from the Lord. So for this week and next week, I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to look at two chapters in 1 Corinthians that talk about this idea of the body being one and then walking in a way that has tremendous transforming power because that's what we want to see. So I'm, 
going to today look at 1 Corinthians 12, and you can go ahead and turn there. If you're using the black Bibles that are underneath the chairs in front of you, it's page number 799. 799, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, there's a lot of Scripture. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go verse by verse in exegete like I normally will. I, I'll go back to that when we go to Mark. God has a different purpose this morning. I'm gonna, we're going to read through it. I'm going to give you some high points and show you how the sh- chapter fits together logically. But then the more important thing is getting to the applicational points of what does it mean for us to be one body? What does it look like to be truly aligned with each other? And what do we need to do in order for that to be the case? Because what we want to see is shalom. Shalom is when things are whole, like Leroy said in worship. It's when things are whole. When things, there's no fissures, there's no divisions. It's whole. It's a beautiful thing when things are whole. And in order for that shalom to happen, we have to walk in the Spirit of Christ. And in Philippians 2, you see the Spirit of Christ. And then Paul summarizes the essential attitude that comes with a shalom environment, which is everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. In the world, there's all sorts of great organizations doing great stuff. But when you're of Jesus Christ, of his stock, you naturally, sacrificially look to the interests of others. And we are called to walk in the spirit of Christ. But when we walk in the spirit of the flesh and in our own self, we inevitably only go so far when it comes to others' interests. If we're going to go the full way, the way Christ did, even laying down his life for each other, that's a whole different kind of community than people are used to seeing. Because everyone looks out for themselves at the end of the day, even those in the church. So how, what does it look like when you have a body of people who are actually looking out, we're all looking out for each other's interests? What would that look like? That would be a pocket of shalom. That's what we want. And I would call that place uncommon ground. That is uncommon ground because you don't see that. Everyone looks out for their own interests. You're talking about a place where people look for others' interests ahead of their own to the point of death? Oh, that's uncommon ground. That's a place where the strong... Instead of crushing the weak, they lift up the weak. That's a place where the majority, instead of ignoring the minority, they honor the minority among them. Instead of rolling their eyes when the minority complain about this or complain about that, they say, let me feel your pain. Because you look out for the interests of others. Whichever minority we're talking about, whether it's spiritual or or ethnic or economic or, or whatever, gender, whatever it is. Mutual concern and interest for one another. That's an uncommon place. That Do you see that in the news every night? Mutual concern for each other, putting others' interests. Is that what you see in the news? No, this is uncommon ground, isn't it? And we are no better than anyone else out there, friends. The church, by and large, is indistinguishable from the world. And that is not what our calling is. So what does this all look like? So 1 Corinthians 12 gives us the, why should we be concerned about being this oneness? Because we are one, whether we know it or not. And so live in sync with the reality that we are one. And that's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. Again, I'm going to look at it in a very high level. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. 
Therefore, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, before we go any further, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on. Why is he talking about spiritual gifts? What are spiritual gifts? This letter was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century. He was the leading proponent of Christianity. And he went to the Gentile or to non-Jewish places to tell them about Jesus. And when he got there, he found very unusual things. They were doing all sorts of, of worship of these, these stone idols that couldn't say anything. And yet they were bowing down to these things, and they would have all these crazy practices, sexual practices. And, and then ecstatic speech was part of that. Oh, that was very much a part of what was going on in Corinth. So then these people hear about Jesus, and they say yes to Jesus. But they remember some of their religious experiences and what was happening was they were bringing some of that into and mixing it with what they were learning about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians because the Corinthian church is going off the rails in lots of different areas. There is sexual immorality that's not even being checked. Not okay. There are rivalries between different leaders and factions rising up. This guy should be leading us. He should be leading us. He should be... Not Okay. And then there is chaotic worship. No one's in agreement. And, and everyone's doing their own thing in worship. And it's, and it's a total mess. So he writes this letter. Now in chapter 12, he's addressing what I was just talking about. They were taking some of their religious practices and mixing them into Christianity. Because when they came to faith in Christ, they were told that when you accept Christ, the Spirit of God comes into you. And you now have the Spirit of Holy God. And once He's inside of you, He then animates you. He works in you. And that sounded similar to what they used to experience in their pagan religions when they would have these ecstatic experiences. So what was happening was there were people in the church who were saying, a real experience is when you have all of this experience, whoa, la, 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 and all this ecstatic speech, and, and they wanted to see the miraculous and the supernatural, and they were elevating those gifts above all the other gifts in the church. And some people who weren't having that experience felt less than those who were. And so he's speaking against that. So he's saying, listen, you were influenced. That word there literally means to be emotionally led by these mute idols. But, you've, but the living God is one who's not going to lead you to say, Jesus, be cursed. In the way they're living in the church, it's, they're living in such a way that's essentially cursing the name of Jesus because he's not representing Jesus accurately. No. And they're saying a true religious experience is not in the experience itself. It's in the fruit of the experience. If the fruit of the experience is such that you're cursing the name of Jesus in the way you're living and talking to each other, which is what they're doing in Corinth, it's not a true religious experience. I don't care how ecstatic it is and how miraculous it appears. Look for the fruit. What is a true religious experience? When someone says, Jesus is Lord, when there's commitment. In the first century to say, Jesus is Lord, you're putting your life on the line because only Emperor Caesar is Lord, Curios, in the first century. To say anyone else is Lord, you are going to have your head chopped off. So to say Jesus is Lord means there's full commitment, and I'm not in it for my great experience. I'm in it out of commitment to Christ to death. What's the fruit of your religious experience, Corinthians? I don't see good fruit, Corinth. What spirit are you following? That's what he's basically challenging them in the first three verses. So the first point I want to make here is that a true religious experience, uh, actually, what is, not every spiritual experience is of God. Look for the fruit that comes from it. Is it godly fruit? 
or is it just fruit that, fi- fruit that feeds the flesh? So having said that, well, now what about these spirits? Should we avoid these spiritual? No. Well, let's talk about what they should be, and, and not just the miraculous stuff that you're, you're clamoring for. It's much broader than that. Verse 4. These are, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. What do you see in those three verses? Same, 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 right? Also, who's, who's at work in these verses? God and Spirit, Lord, God, otherwise known as the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, God the Father. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Jesus then takes that gift and, and gives you a service to, and a way for you to take that gift and serve him. And there's all sorts of different ways, all kinds of different gifts, all kinds of different ways to use those gifts. And then the Father is the one who works it. He's the one who animates the work and causes it to actually be effective. Without the Father blessing it, nothing would happen. So these three things work into each other. But what we're seeing is that God himself is a being who is one and yet three. He's three and one. He's a being who's in community. So God himself is one body working in diversity. And all the gifts are of God. Same, same, same. They're all of God. None is more important than any other. So verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Manifestation is a really important word there. Take a look at what it means. This is a, I, I was like, wow, this is so cool. Can we skip to that, bro? Manifestation. Yeah, don't follow my manuscript. My, the time's all off this morning, so I'm, I'm just kind of going out winging here. A clear indication of the existence or presence or nature of some person or thing. Look at that, okay? Now to each one, the clear indication of the existence and presence of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, what a manifestation is, is it proves the the actual existence of something when you see it. These gifts that are given, what they do is they show to the world God is real. When these gifts are done in the Spirit of God, energized by the God the Father, they reveal the invisible to the invisible world. They reveal the reality of the spiritual realm, of the kingdom of God that is in our midst. That's how you see it. So then the question is, well, then, then how, do I, how, do, how does that get seen in the world? It gets seen in the way that these gifts are used and the variety of those gifts all being used together shows to the world something that's uncommon. So what are some of these gifts? Well, to one, there's given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. I'm not going to explain all these for the sake of time. We're more taken in the idea that there's lots of different gifts. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Again, same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And there's still another, the interpretation of tongues. There's different opinions. Does that tongues mean miraculous things? Or does it mean just languages that are being interpreted? In the context of Corinth and their religious practice, I think he's talking about these ecstatic heavenly tongues like we're going to run into in chapter 13. Notice where he places the miraculous gifts at the end of the list the ones you're putting at the top 
the flashy ones that are all, yeah, that's real, really of God. I'm actually putting those at the bottom in this list, he's saying. Stop overemphasizing the flashy stuff. All these, all of these gifts are the work of one and the same Spirit. So you shouldn't be saying, I have more of the Spirit because look at how I'm demonstrating the power of God and you don't. And that's the attitude that's going on. There's comparison and there's diminishing of those who don't, aren't as impressive as others. He's saying it's all the same Spirit, so why would you elevate one over the other? And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. And you're not worthy of any special praise. You just got given that gift because God decided he wanted to use it through you. It's not because you're any better than anybody else. So in all this, what we see is just like in the Trinity, what the body of Christ is is a unity that's in diversity. Second point, there is unity yet diversity in real spiritual experiences. In other words, what we're seeing here is if we all dressed the same, thought the same, did the exact same ministries, if we all did the exact same thing, it wouldn't be real. What's truly of God is when we, we bless and recognize all the different giftings and release those giftings to work together, all together, in all of their diversity, and actually, yes, celebrating their diversity. I know the culture uses that, but biblically, that's a biblical idea. To celebrate how God has uniquely made each person, and, and conformity is not what unity is about. Conformity is about appreciating the differences and watching how even in our differences, we can still move in the same direction. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, I want you to listen to something that I think all of you have heard at some point. But I just want you to listen to this. It's about 30 seconds long, and then we'll talk about this particular noise that you're about to hear and what it means. Oh, all right. Back it up. Back it up. We need the sound. That's the key to the whole thing. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh yeah, back it up. All right, now listen again. Are you enjoying that? That's awesome. What is that all about? So 30, last year was the 35th anniversary of THX's theme song. And in honor of that, they released the sheet music to what, the piece of music you just heard. Look at this sheet of music. Take a look at this. Wait until you see. This is 1 Corinthians 12 in action, okay? Look. What you just heard was 30 voices. 30 voices, and they all begin at random. They just pick whatever pitch they want to sing. There's no assignment. 30 random pitches, and in between a very narrow band. We're, only gonna, we're all going to sing in here whatever we want. Okay? Conformity, and yet in the midst of that conformity, do what you want. That's what this is. And does anyone enjoy the beginning of that thing? It's cacophony. It's painful. It actually hurts to listen to it, right? You want it to be done. 
And then what happens is, about halfway through, the voices begin to proceed to their predetermined notes that they were given originally. And all 30 proceed to their individual notes, which are all different. When each of them arrive, did you hear when they each arrived at their own note? 30 different notes. So why did it sound so good? Because they were all at the place where the, 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 the writer of the piece of music had predetermined that composes a chord. A chord is when there's harmony. These harmonize. These work with each other. But they have to maintain their difference or you're not going to hear the chord. So it's when each one is doing its part, it sounds incredibly beautiful. Even though, look at how wi we've widened the range. But we want everyone to do what we do and to look like we do and to only fit in our little box of what we think is real Christianity. And then God says, you know what, if you're, yeah, it's, broadening is a little scary. But if we broaden according to what God has predetermined each person is to do, that together is going to sound amazing. All right, let's play it again. We're way out of time, but play it again. Starting to move. Thirty different notes. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the church is supposed to be. That this is what Paul is trying to tell us. He uses a different imagery because he didn't have movies. He uses the body. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read through it and then make a summary comment. I think you'll get it as I go, okay? Verse 12. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, right? All of us, we all have many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We are all baptized by one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. That's a radical statement. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. We all have the same spirit, guys, even in our differences, charismatic, non-charismatic, male, female, slave or free. Slave or free had nothing to do with each other in the ancient world. No socializing. Jew and Gentile hated each other. For them to be in accord with each other, wow, did that stand out in the ancient world, these Christian communities where people who hate each other are serving, not just no, no fighting, but actually loving each other. That's shalom. Shalom is not just a ceasing of fighting. It is beyond fighting, actually going beyond that to love each other. Bless your enemies. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Poor foot, right? In the ancient world, the foot was considered the dirtiest part of the human body. If you wanted to insult your enemy, all you needed to do was raise your foot and show him the bottom of your foot. That was the ultimate insult. Dirty, dirty, dirty. Only the lowest of slaves would wash the feet of another person. So if the foot, who no one values, should say, well, no one values me. You know, I'm not a hand. I'm not, I'm not that impressive guy up there or this person who does this. So I guess I don't belong to the body. 
It wouldn't, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Even though it feels bad for itself, it's still part of the body, right? It doesn't matter if you feel that way. You're still part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, you know, I don't belong to the body. It wouldn't, for that reason, stop being part of the body. No. The body's not the body unless you have all the parts. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And part of the challenge for us is what Romans 12.3 says, which is all of us should have a sober judgment of ourselves. Some of us think we're something we're not. And maybe it's because we see what the community values, and then we want to be what the community values. You're in a worshiping community, you want to be the worship leader because that's what the community values. You're in a teaching community, you want to be the teacher because that's what we tend to value. We tend to want to be what the community values. But part of being in the body is having sober judgment. Lord, what have you called me to be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? They would, imagine one big eye. That's a monster, that, right? That's not a helpful thing. That's a monster. No, as it is, there are many parts but one body. Now you've got the reverse situation. Instead of the person who thinks too low of themselves, that's a problem. Then you've got the person who thinks too high, right? The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you for sure. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. By the way, he's talking about the reproductive parts when he's talking about the weaker parts. They're indispensable, aren't they? Without those private parts, lots of important things don't happen, correct? Let's just be honest, right? No reproduction of humanity, okay? But those are weak, sensitive spots, right? And the parts we think are less honorable, right, we treat with special honor. We don't want those seen in public. Hide that. <laughs> no, these, the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts, they need no special treatment. I get my hands dirty, don't even think about it. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor. He's actually giving greater honor to the weaker parts. That should tell us a lot about his idea of what the church should look like. Is it possible that God's, if this is right, is it true that what God is saying is I want you to do what Jesus did? What did Jesus do? He made himself everything. No, is that what the scripture says? He made himself what? Nothing. Boy, have we missed this. The body of Christ is a place where instead of the weak and marginalized are ignored and forgotten and hidden away because they embarrass us, they're actually elevated. And, and, and they're actually listened to and, and, and they're actually shown greater honor. We take special care of the weak and the marginalized. Special care. That's why, what's true religion? To have a great worship service? What's true religion? To take care of what? The weakest among us, the widows and the orphans, far from being burdens, they're the parts that are supposed to be given greater honor. Are we living to this? What do we honor? When I go to a conference about the church, what do I see lifted up? How to 
make yourself huge. How to have the greatest teaching worship ever. The flashy stuff. We do the same thing the Corinthians did. But God has put the butter together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body. We did a really weird devotional in the 40 days, day two. I don't know how many of you guys caught it. Trying to explain what shalom is. I had you read Joshua chapter 8. I don't know if you remember it, but what it was is they were building an altar in Gilgal to remember what the Lord had done in the great victory of Jericho and Ai. And God said, I want you to use stone, but not just any stone. I want you to use what kind of stone? Shalom is the word in the Hebrew. Shalom stone. What the heck is shalom stone? It was a stone that had no crack or division in it. It's what Leroy talked about in the worship. It's a solid stone that's not going to crack when you put weight on it. That's what he's saying here. God has created the body in such a way that there's no weak spot in it. That's only possible if we show special attention to the weak. And so we are to pursue wholeness in the body. That means looking for people who are, who are the weak and the marginalized and saying, how can we serve you? How can we bring out all the God colors that God's placed in you? Instead of, oh yeah, we got to take care of that, don't we? That's a problem. So that no division, but that its parts should show equal concern for each other. If every part is part of me, then every part matters. My toe gets stubbed, my head feels it. Right? So there's, I'm concerned for my foot as much as my head. And so what does it look like when a church is walking as one body? Verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Oh, wow. What an ideal that is. That's called empathy. And one of the things that grieves my heart and, I, and, it, and it's because I see it in myself, okay? So I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing here just as much. But when I bring up a minority's position and what I get in, whether it's men saying it's all about women or women saying it's all about men or whether it's charismatic, when are we going to be in the spirit or the traditional saying, why are we going to excess or whatever it might be. When I hear the different opinions, what I, when I try to say what the other person is saying, what I'll often get is eye-rolling and oh man, not that again. And instead of saying, help me understand why my brother and sister feels this way, I instead get exasperated. Father, forgive me. Forgive us. If one part suffers, it, it doesn't say legitimate suffering. If one part is suffering in any way, we suffer with it. We don't roll our eyes. Father, forgive us. This has been done in our midst. And I have done it. When are they going to finally get on? When are they just going to? Oh, God, forgive us for this. This is such a slap in your face. And this applies to the regional church, too. If one part is honored, one part rejoices with it. When I hear churches are exploding, my first gut reaction is, you know, jealousy. Why not us? Just being honest with you, okay? Do I really rejoice when I hear that my competitor's business has taken off? For those of you who are business owners, is there even a little bit in you going, ah, what about me? 
Think about how radical this is. If one part is on it saying, yes, I'm so happy. That's awesome. Wow, does that talk about uncommon ground? Cheering on your, your competitor in the business world or your fellow churches. And, and, and that's a discipline. It takes walking with God to stay in that place. It's uncommon ground. And then he summarizes all this. Now you are the body of Christ. That's what you are. This is a statement of fact. He's not saying you're becoming the body of Christ. You're gradually moving towards unity. You are the body of Christ. We're, the, we're all part of it. We're, we already have oneness in the sense of our, our, our standing before God. We are one church. And each one of you is a part of it. And God is placed in the church, and then he gives another list. First of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And then he brings up the, the stuff everyone's chasing after. Then the miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. And then he's making the point again. And actually in the Greek, verse 29 is not all apostles, not all prophets. And the point here is not everyone's an apostle, not everyone's a prophet, not everyone's a teacher, not everyone works miracles, not everyone gives gifts of healing, not everyone speaks in tongues, not everyone interprets. No, no, no. Stop focusing on these gifts and your role and getting all caught up in you, 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 me, me, me. It's us. And each one of us, like that, that music I showed you, has a prearranged place. And whether it is the lowest place that a human being could possibly serve or the highest, it is all crucial for the chord to be sung. And if I have the right attitude, Lord, I, I, I would be thrilled, right? What did the psalmist say? I, I'd rather be a doorkeeper, right? Which is just like nothing in the ancient system of, of temple worship. I, I'd rather be there. I mean, I, I'm willing to do anything. Anything I do is for Christ is an incredible privilege. Desire the greater gift, the greater gift, the gift that build up the body instead of build up your ego. And I'll show you the most excellent way, and that'll be next week looking at the gifts of love. The way we walk in these gifts is in love. What does that mean? We'll look at that next week. So the vision here is that we can't create a pocket of shalom until we are a pocket of shalom. And there is good unity here, but it can go a lot deeper than it is. There's concern for one another, but it can go a lot deeper than it is. There's people using their gifts, but that can go a lot deeper than it is. And all of that will bring a greater chord that the world's going to say, wow, that is uncommon. So let me get, my third point is real spiritual experiences require full participation of diverse parts. Every part is needed if God's going to do something real here. It can't just be one or two people. It's all of us together playing the part God's given us and being thankful I have any part. That's when God's going to break through. So applicational. Let me just say these off quickly. We're, we are one body. We need to abolish independent living. That is an American cancer on the church. And the scripture knows nothing of independent living. Nothing. Nothing. You can't show me a verse on it. We are one body. We are connected. Your pain's my pain. We're, by the way, men, we struggle in this area, and we're going to be sending out a survey this week. And it's a two-question survey. It's going to take you 20 seconds, okay? I'm not asking much time. But it's finding out how connected are you to other men. And if you're not and you want to be, our commitment to you is we're going to help you make that connection because we need to get connected to each other. 
And women do it naturally, but the men struggle there. So number two, we're uniquely gifted, all of us. Avoid comparison. Look, Brett's standing in the back. You all know Brett. He's a gifted evangelist. Not all of us are called to be evangelists. That's a gift God gives to some people. Okay? If you say, well, I'm not like Brett. I don't, I'm not, you know, I, God can't use me because I don't walk up to total strangers and share the gospel with them like Brett does. You're, now you're missing it. God's gifted you in a different way, and he can reveal himself and manifest the reality of his life in you through your gift. In whatever unique way God's gifted you, don't compare yourself. And just to say, Brett's going to be, because that's his gift, he's passionate to help you see that you don't have to have the gift of evangelism to be used by God. But all of us have the privilege of revealing and manifesting the reality of God in our midst. So he's going to be teaching a class starting two weeks from today, April 7th, if you, during this service. If you want to go and find out how can God use me, ordinary me, the way I am, without having to be Brett or Billy Graham, just ordinary me, to somehow help people see the reality of God. I encourage you to be part of that class. Third thing, we're equally necessary. We need to learn to appreciate every single part. In those areas that we differ, we need to listen to the other person and say, how does that compliment me instead of how does that challenge me make me uncomfortable i don't want that we need to appreciate what each person brings and realize we're all necessary for the full functioning of the body and then finally we're interdependent in christ we need to attend to one another we need to attend we need to suffer with those who suffer this is what i pray for for empathy i and i'm going to end with just two stories number one I got a call on Friday that just really was very difficult. It was someone who told me, Andre, I've been gone from Winterberry two and a half years, and no one's called me, including you. And then they said, I served for years and years and years, and I happened to notice when I dropped off the serving team I was on, that was the last time I ever heard from anyone at Winterberry. And she said, and what it made me feel like is, if you're not useful... We don't care about you. All I could do is say, I profusely forgive me. I am so sorry. We should have clearly reached out to you. It's, you're part of our body. Please forgive me. And she did graciously. But I can't pastor 400 plus people, guys. We, we need to work together here. And that's why we have life groups. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have men, men's groups, women's groups. That's why ministry teams. But, but when people aren't part of those, we need to reach out to them and say, you matter to me, even when you're maybe not functionally doing a lot here. You still are part of this body and you matter. So forgive us, Lord, when we overlook people that way and make them feel like we only care about them for what they give us. On the good side, and I'll end with this. Um, last week, a woman came in our office and she was just crying. She said, I didn't know where else to turn. I'm so overwhelmed. And so Anne-Marie and I sat down with her, and she just poured out her heart. Oh, this poor woman. It was just, oh, I won't go into the details. Just trust me. It's, wow. Her burdens were huge. And so we said, well, let's see if we can take care of some of these. And, and one of them is just help with laundry. And so we had an idea. And uh, the next day, I went over to the ladies' Bible study. And I shared with them this woman and her need for help with the housework and laundry. And before I could even finish, bing, 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 bing. Yes, yes, yes. They were so excited. They started talking to each other how they could serve this person they didn't even know. All they know is someone in their church had a need and they could serve, fill it and they were excited to do it. I, I literally started crying standing there with them because it was so beautiful. 
And by God's grace, there's been a lot of that at Wintonbury over the years. Praise be to God. But let's fan that in the flame. Let's see even more of that. So ultimately, where we are is, I'm so glad you did the altar call early on because I was led to do it, but knowing me, there wouldn't have been time for it, so I'm glad you did that. But Leroy called you up here tonight to say, can we just, just not, we're so afraid to move beyond what we know. We're so afraid. God is calling us in this vision to be shalom, to walk in shalom, to walk with him, and he's going to take us in places that maybe we've never been before. We've got to be open to that because life is there. Freedom is there. And that's where shalom is, on common ground, following him to a place where we love each other and we serve each other and we, we, we honor each other in our differences instead of getting frustrated with each other in our differences. May that be the case. Father, would you make that true here at Wintonbury? Make us a place, Lord, that honors each other, Lord, instead of getting frustrated. And Father, thank you. There are many pockets where people are honoring each other, and we thank you for that. That's your work already working in Wintonbury, but we want to go even deeper, Lord. Help us to go into all that you have for us. Help us to walk in shalom according to the power of your spirit working uniquely through every single one of us. Thank you for this body. Beautiful people here, Lord. Bring them to the fullness that you want for every one of them and for us as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want prayer, we'd love to pray for you. I'd love to speak with you too. Let's walk in shalom in the power of the Spirit of God.